put me on the spot right off the bat Aaron I mean I think right now I would say I'm doing exactly what I love and enjoy which is writing poetry uh, absolutely um, I was I spent many years working in the sort of corporate executive universe and did okay for myself enough so that I was provided an opportunity to get out of it and I ran as fast as I could. And now I'm able to really just write full time. And that's where I'm putting all my eggs into that basket, which is writing. Whether it, it gets published, whether it gets accepted, whether it makes a dollar, it's just, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a bad place to be. Yeah, and uh, I kind of feel least... like that's, um, if you don't mind me saying this, I kind of feel like that's a horrible start to the video. Um, <laughs> if you don't make mind. make a lot of people jealous out there. If you don't mind scrubbing that completely. And starting recording all the way over. <laughs> hey, no edits, no edits. Um, but if you're going to leave, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people would would um, be sympathetic to that in the sense of like, yeah, a lot of people have, myself included, so at times, have, you know, juggle multiple things. And sometimes, you know, that the creative thing isn't always on at, at the top of the list. Um, yeah. So when you do have those opportunities to to dig in and put your time and attention into it, hey, t I say take it. Yeah, exactly. Well, fortunately, you know, you can, there is just in life in general, right? There's a lot of plate spinning. And so while I might make it sound, and I don't mean to be pretentious seemingly at all, while it may sound like I can dedicate and focus all my time on writing and that's what I want to do, that is sort of the dream vision. At the same time, there are still responsibilities and obligations and life commitments that that come on. And there are still opportunities where I might find some little piece of work doing some consultancy work or doing some marketing here and there. But your question was, in a dream scenario, the best possible world, if I could be doing anything that I wanted, would want to be doing, it would absolutely be writing and creating. And poetry is probably the highest on the list. Secondarily to that is I also really enjoy, obviously behind me, writing for comic books. So I like different dipping my toes into different mediums. Yeah, awesome. Well, I love um, that question, so there's been so such tremendous work lately um that some of the people like Bianca Stone and a few others out there that have been taking art and and you guys do this in Wild Roof Journal right you guys take art and you take the written word and you put them together and then you present something that's an even better collaboration than than either one of them might be in a silo on their own and so that I feel is sort of fertile territory and something that I'm really interested in continuing to explore. Yeah, so that's definitely that's part of the, the big part of the concept. Um, so yeah, Mary Beth, I don't, I'm not, um, I don't totally know the answer to this. So it's, a, I guess, a good starting point too. As like, kind of, what's your background in terms of like, okay, you're a writer. That's why you're here. But like, what are the some of some of the other aspects of your journey along the way? Well, I've been a lot of things, um, you know, I guess I should say I've made money at a lot of things, but primarily um, I taught at the university. I taught creative writing and women's studies, but um, I've always wanted to do a lot of different things. Like I was one of those students, you know, that couldn't ever settle on a particular degree because I kind of, I loved everything. 
Uh, well, not everything, not accounting. I mean, I never had a business mind, but like I love the sciences and I love the arts. And uh, so um, my undergraduate degree is, is a, a cobbled together degree from all of that. And so it's no surprise that I became a writer, but being a teacher is also, you know, allowed, has allowed me to bring my, you know, excitement about writing and about learning um, to the students. And so like when I was getting my MFA, most of the MFA students were taking all these literature courses, but I took a course in botany and I took a course in a anthropology and archaeology and I went on an archaeological dig out in the Aleutians and learned all about the Aleutic people that lived there still and you know just uh there's just so much to learn and that's one of the things I love about being a writer is that I I get to say I want to learn about this and so then I can go research it and then I can write something from that and it's just like getting to be a little kid all the time and getting to learn so much and I you know, one of the jobs I would love to have, maybe you could do this, Erin, for me and tell me how it goes, is I would love to be a park ranger. I would love to go <laughs> and be outside all the time. Like, have that mean my job that I go and I'm outside? I don't think I necessarily want to do the crowd control part of that, but the studying the natural world and just getting to be in it and observe it and learn from it and take care of it would just be my ideal job. Of course, I would also be writing poetry as I sat there and took care of it and worked on the trails and so forth and so on. <laughs> but yeah, all of that. Yeah, I think that the people portion kind of messes up that whole park ranger concept. Um, yeah, so the, the kind of park ranger that carries around a notepad and, and pays attention more to the uh, the plants and the wildlife than the, uh, than the patrons. I used to, when my son was little, I'd take his Boy Scout troop out into the woods and with a little right in the rain pad. And, you know, we would just all sit and watch plants and draw them and, you know, watch the fish in the stream. And that was so delightful. You know, working with kids, I think, is a very special thing. And anyone that can do that, you know, that's that's really um, high honor in my book. Yeah, it makes makes sense. Yeah, people who uh, people who write and kind of kind of pursue that um, that trajectory typically do do a lot of things and have a lot of interests. Um, so that checks out. Um, yeah, so I think <laughs> oh yeah the um, the idea for today would be um, each of you have a have a poetry collection. So um, without I don't want to kind of like bog us down too much. Uh, with theoretical discussions, I'll say, hey, read us a poem. You make a selection, read your poem, and then if you've joined us for previous podcasts, you know one of the things we love most is getting uh, the behind-the-scenes view of the poem. So it's it's all well and good to, to analyze and play the interpretive game, and uh, we do our share of that, but it's uh, it's worth taking advantage when we have the actual writer here reading the actual poem to say, hey, what? What were you thinking? Uh, where, what was the inspiration? What were, you, were influences? Was it just a happy accident sometime or you just kind of came across the right thing and it just popped out or was it some, you know, some other winding path? So yeah, um, Mary Beth, you have the honor. You're a returning podcast uh, participant. Okay. Yeah, so I'm going to read from, this is my book, Tender Gravity. Um, and I'm going to read a poem Um it's called Rock Poem, um, but I'm just going to give a little background before um, in terms of the place and the time for, that this poem rose from. I got to go on an artist residency in the Tracy Arm Ford's Terror Wilderness area of the Tongass National Forest. So I got to hang out with rangers for a while <laughs> and kind of shadow them. And the way that this that the rangers patrol this watery world is by kayak. So um, we were kayaking and camping on these rock cliffs in an area. Um, it's called South Sawyer, and um, it's an area that was under ice when John Muir wrote about and visited that area. Um, you know, in 1879. So we were in an area that had not been. Um, 
had not been released from ice for too long. So it's a lot of bare rock. Um, but the other thing I want to say is that I, in, in almost all my writing, or probably all my writing, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a seeker, like I'm seeking to answer one basic question, and that is, how shall we live? How shall we as humans live? And for me, I always look to the more than human world, the natural world, for the answers to those questions. Um, so in this poem, I'm asking rock. And I find that rock is a very interesting um, being to have a conversation with because it's been around a long time. And so when I, you know, a lot of times people ask me, how do you deal with eco grief? Um, which has become so commonplace now that everybody knows what I mean when I say that word. Um, and one of the ways I do deal with it is by being with and thinking about geologic forces, thinking about the forces that are so vast in terms of the time span that they cover. Um, so here I am, I'm sitting on this rock face, I'm hanging out with um, a park ranger who, uh, who spends every summer in this place, uh, and I'm getting to spend a little time with him. I'll read it now. Rock poem. Awed by the patterns, I say, I'd like to be here with a geologist. And you say, one was here once, an old guy who said, wow, this is some ugly rock. And I'm thinking that is the last word I'd use to describe it. Ugly, he meant tortured. He knew the processes that led to these starburst scrolling fractures white scribbles across gray, orange shimmering splashes undercut by green. He knew these color patterns evidenced a long mutilation of bedrock granite. But for me, sitting on the headland, it's the epitome of beauty, draws my gaze again and again. The lines are messages scrawled by giants. The earth is speaking to me in a language I do not yet understand. And I want to just hold this poem up because the form of the poem is actually kind of, it's important. Yeah. In that the rock itself had all these different forms going on. And so I tried to replicate that on a page in some way. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I do besides all the strange line breaks, which I got to tell you, when I had this book published, it took so much effort for the copy editors to get it right. <laughs> so much effort. I thought we weren't going to get there, but we did. Um, but anyhow, it was really important to me that every single spacing was as I had it that the quotation marks that are just kind of hanging out in the air are hanging out in the air because that denotes this idea of another language that mm -hmm. I don't yet understand. So, um, you know, that's one of the joys of poetry is that you get to play with form. Uh, and I really like the way this one turned out because I'm trying to translate really something that's not translatable, but I do my best. Very nice. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I feel I feel like I want to share an anecdote because it, it has it has the rock and uh, the rock and poetry connection. So I guess I could just I could throw it out there, and I don't know if it's too much of a tangent or not. But what what you were kind of saying about just the kind of the view of rock as something ugly or something ordinary um, and something precious. And that that kind of like that interplay just made me think of it. So um, I traded a book for a for a piece of onyx a couple of weeks ago. It just kind of happened just by circumstance. And um, I'll spare you the, the kind of long winded details, but that was the trade: a book for a piece of onyx. And there's something so like kind of pure about that interaction. It wasn't planned. It wasn't. That's kind of what the person had like on them. It was like it was the therapies of onyx. And I, I, you know, and it was just like, oh, I felt good about it afterward. 
like normally with that, you know, the rock, paper, scissors games, I was thinking, well, you know, normally paper beats rock, but I just traded my paper. I don't know if this is a smart move. Um, but it was just this odd thing, like, come on, this is, I never like desired a piece of Onyx. I never really thought about it, um, but I carry it around all the time now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it just had that kind of reverence for me when you, when you kind of mentioned that um, in the poem. So I'm with you. I guess it's a long way of saying I'm with you with that. Um, and that rock will be around a lot longer than that book. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> As a book person, that's a little bit painful. But yeah, that's probably right. true in, in a literal sense, yes. <laughs> you said one thing, too, that I was striking is like the just kind of the central question was like what? Um, I kind of rephrased it in my head as like something like what makes life worthwhile? That's not exactly what you said, um, but that's what I wrote down. Um, what makes life worthwhile? And we can have like so many answers to that. So is that something you pursued or is that a thought you've had in, in kind of more of the larger writing experience? And Yeah, for me, the question is more, why am I here? Why are we here? Or as Wendell Berry said, our um, what's the title? What are humans for? <laughs> That's the title of his book, right? You know, I mean, I think about that a lot because I can look at the natural world and I, I understand what this birch tree outside my window is doing for the birds and the soil and, you know, all these other beings. I, I often question what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, the answer I always come down to is I am here to love and praise. You know, so my poetry is is why I'm here in a way, you know, I mean, I, that seems very grandiose, I know, but it's kind of this philosophical question that I've always struggled with, like, what, what are humans for, like, really, and, um, but your question, what makes life worth living, you know, I think you get the answer to that in the same, in the same kind of search, you know, for me, what makes life worth living was sitting on that rock, you know, and just being with the rock. Um, and I think a lot of times we get, we get overcomplicated and what we think our life is supposed to be. Like we have all these grand ideas of what we're going to accomplish. And um, it's just kind of a funny human thing. I don't think other species are running around doing that, thinking about their legacy or whether something's going to be named after them. <laughs> but we humans sure do. So anyhow, I find us a curious species. <laughs> I would really like to sit down with that poem and actually give it a couple once or twice overs, because as I was listening to you and the way that you articulate the poem, and then afterwards showing sort of the way the form and structure plays into it, you know, that was missing from the presentation, just hearing it. Um, but I knew going into the poem that form was important to you. And in one of the questions you had asked earlier about holding up, you know, if we can show the poem. And so when I was listening to it, there were a couple words that I that caught my attention that I that sort of fish hooked me that I fixated on. And in particular, it was the word, the use of the word torture and use of the word mutilation, both very much the, and 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 just how, how it sort of resonated with me listening to just one time was I fixated on those words as a a thing that humans do. And when you preface the poem by saying, how shall we live as, as sort of this aspirational question, I started, I guess, to layer in my own sort of preconceptions into, and, and my own sort of point of view in history and my own angle at approaching things by listening to your poem. So I hit those words hit me and they were kind of like, like two sucker punches because I almost felt like that is exactly the challenge that we humans have 
with our relationship with nature and where sort of nature and 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 human civilization intersect is one where we are continuously torturing and mutilating and scarring the land and at the same time this rock has this resilience and in its formation the way that you described sort of the starburst and the layer the layering that was going on in the striations in the rock i almost saw it as that the, the rock is so resilient and it's already gone through all of its battles and wars and like you said the, that piece of onyx is going to be around long after the book i guess if i had to pose it as a question what was your intent on specifically choosing those particular words and putting them in in the poem yeah yeah no yeah that's that's the thing about poetry is you really pay attention to every word um and a couple things first of all those are actually geologic like geologists use those words you know to mean something particular interesting um, yeah, I know, which is kind of bizarre, right? <laughs> yeah. Light bulb. Excellent. So, um, Thank you. And and the and the word ugly too. I mean, you know, the the geologist he didn't mean ugly, you know, the way we kind of toss it around. Um, he meant this rock has been folded and you know heated and twisted and shot through with other rock and all these processes going on. But using those words um, specifically not just from this is how geologists talk, but more to what you perceived, which is to look at that rock and what it's been through, that it's a, it's like a face, you know, it's a map of um, time and what it has endured, if you will, the word endure. Um, and so it has a lot to teach us. It has a lot to teach us about how to endure, how to uh, withstand what feels like torture, what what can be mutilation. How do we how do we navigate that? How do we uh, rise from that into what what I saw was was beauty? I mean, the word that came to me was this is beautiful. It looked like a piece of abstract art to me, you know, an intentional piece of abstract art. And so, you know, I think of that real kid quote, you know, about everything being terror and beauty and how those two are wedded or, you know, that there cannot be the light without the dark. Um, so I'm working with that in this poem, you know, that, that, that we're working on these, these contrasts and that in those and really facing them, we can find answers about how to move forward, given where we're at right now, what's already happened, all the history um and where we need to go what we want to see happen yeah that's lovely thank you thank you yeah thanks well i'm just going to say when you when you study another field especially a scientific field how they use language i find it fascinating yeah <laughs> yeah I, I wouldn't think that a word like ugly which would be used as a geological term to describe, like you said, this folding and this process of how it changed over time. Because as a as a listener, I heard ugly, and I, I thought, well, this sounds seemed for a split second it seemed out of place, right? Because of the way we use ugly or what ugly has w w meant to us individually, right? And so we project that onto onto the words as how what they mean to us in that place so it's yeah. interesting to to learn that little bit of geology lexicon <laughs> <laughs> that it's so brutal and and plain mm -hmm. and kind of cruel in a way <laughs> mary beth yeah. i have a question is is your your book you said it was called tender earth tender gravity sorry tender gravity my mistake is your looking at your 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 work as a whole do you really focus on a majority of the elements or sort of the natural world to communicate your messages or this collection um 
was my first poetry collection. And uh, the poems were all written over a, a long period of time. And there, there's a narrative arc to the, to the book of seeking, falling, finding, because there are things that occur within the narrative arc that are, you know, it's both sort of coming to awakening um, to the, the wonder and beauty of the world and then experiencing all the tortured things that can happen to us. In this case, you know, things that happen to me personally, uh, the murder of my brother is, is a theme throughout this book. Um, the, the oil spill, climate chaos, these larger um, disasters that are going on in the world. So all of that, you know, is part of the the central part of the book. The second part of the book is that sort of falling, you know, where you're you can feel like things are not making sense. And then and then the latter part of the book comes back around to that sense of coming back together out of that into some kind of a new understanding. Um, rock poem appears in the first third of the book, um, and uh, most of the poems are set in, well, they're kind of set all over the place, um, mostly Alaska, North Carolina, but also Hawaii, because I've spent a lot of time on Kauai. Uh, and I am looking for answers from the natural world throughout the book. So there's all kinds of beings in there. I mean, you know, we got rock. There's a lot of poems in here that are about, um, that are based off of um, space observations, <laughs> because in another place I find solace is in the big spatial picture. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, in, in what, what we have learned from astronomy and then, you know, really small beings too, like tiny seabirds or a bog plant, um, some of these easily overlooked lives that really have a lot to, to teach us. And so I, I spend a lot of my time listening, um, and I try to think of myself as more of a conduit or more of a translator than I am like telling here's my story, uh, but rather this sort of multiverse of all these, all these other voices that are out there that um, because we all speak in our human language, we may not hear as well, but that have a lot of wisdom to share with us and uh, a lot of ways to, to teach us and to, to lift us up. Thank you for that. Thanks. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> well, it's it's great. And it's great to hear that from my point of view. It's really great to hear that your book is a process for you to ask questions and seek answers. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that you've also it, it there also is a narrative through throughput of asking a question. The second part you mentioned sort of figuring things out or maybe receiving the answer and it may be not aligning to what your expectations were and then a conclusion where you've changed or grown or been uplifted because of that. That's really a, that's a, you know, a nice through line. Yeah. From, nice a, from, a reader, from a reader's perspective, how I'm going to interpret your work is yeah. I'm going to be sitting with it and I'm going to go on that journey. And so now I get a little bit of a roadmap before I get started, which is kind of cool. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing about a poetry book, isn't it? That, you know, it's not like a novel or even creative nonfiction. Uh, you can just have a collection of poems. Like how did I've read books of poetry and I thought, you know, how did the poet choose the order of the poems? Like, how do you do that? Because each one is yeah. each poem can stand alone. It's like a short story collection, I guess, would be the only thing that it comes closest to. So, you know, it's an interesting part of the creative process. I'm sure that you found that too, Eric, when you're putting together a book of poems, like how do you put them together? Yeah. Kind of play around with it, but it's nice to have some kind of, like you said, through line or narrative arc that you're, that you're working with so that they're not, um, so that the reader can be, you know, can see that overall picture of why this is a book. And not mm -hmm. just pages. Yeah, I think that's so valuable and important. And if it's okay, Aaron, if I ask Mary Beth another question, can I Go can I it. ask you a, a how-to sort of question, Mary Beth? Mm -hmm. So 
along those lines, when you were putting together tender gravity and sort of laying in the structure and organizing your poems, did you get input from someone else? Did you just beat your head against the rock, so to speak, until it all lined up? Or, you know, did you uh, did you have some uh, contributor or an editor and, and just kind of trying to look behind the curtain a little bit? You know, that's a good question. I I didn't. Um, I uh, I know that what I did was I had an idea of what I wanted it to be. And I had a lot of poems and I had some more to write. Um, it's kind of like the way the heart of the sound was. It started out, my nonfiction book started out just with some essays that I'd published and then putting them together and then threading, you know, writing the missing pieces. But for this, you know, I read a lot about how other people put together poetry collections. There's some good articles out there. Yeah. Uh, some good examples. And then my friend, a friend of mine um, said, she said, well, it's just intuitive. And so I was like, oh, okay, of course it is. Of hmm. course it's not logical. <laughs> and so I printed them all out. I put on some some Vivaldi, that's who I listened to. <laughs> and I just had this big floor space and I just started playing with them and moving them around. And um, I really liked that process. I've used it a couple of times now with some other manuscripts that I'm working on. And then kind of, if you can, leave them out on the floor for a while, you know, depends. And if you share the space with somebody else, you may not be able to, but, or if you have a wall, some poets do that. Like they hang them up on the wall and move them around. Um, but letting it be really intuitive. I mean, is that what you found with yours, Eric? I mean, we can, I could ask you the same question about how you organized. Um. Well, I find, uh, I mean, my process, I guess, was less so physical, putting it out there and, or putting it on a board or making post-it notes of all the titles and rearranging them. Um, I feel like I, 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 too, had been working on my book for a long time. So it was a series of poems that I've had spent months or years in the crafting of some of them so I knew them so intimately well when it came time to sort of lay out my first chapbook um it was almost I just kind of shuffled them together and let the cards fall where they may and then it almost sort of organically fell into place with very little shifting around because um, I had sort of pre-selected the poems out of like all the collection of poems that I've written to date that I felt were ready to be shared with other people. So when I collected the ones that I felt thematically hit what I wanted to put out there as my first work, it 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 sort of just sort of aligned itself with very minimal like trials or tribulations or you know, I really didn't have to stress out over it too much. But in hindsight, I've learned a lot since the book's been out into the world now. And I've identified certainly opportunities going into the next book where I may want to pay a little bit more, even more attention to that portion of it. Um, I definitely learned that the editing and proofreading process behind the curtain of putting together your book is an invaluable part of the whole when it's produced or ultimately, you know, put out there and, and released. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, and I would, I would yeah. venture to guess that there was some intuition going on in there. Yeah, we probably. Yeah. yeah maybe there was some... going to be intuitive, but you were, yeah. I, I usually side with the the intuition a little bit with things like that. And I love the music aspect too, or I think there's there's a little bit of something to like having a little bit of a process running that you're not really um, you're partially cognitively cognitively aware of, partially not. But yeah, when you said putting together maybe a poetry collection, 
is maybe like a short story collection. I think it's like putting together an album. I think that's the best analogy I have is like, um, that's how I frame yeah. it. Maybe that's my, uh, my, you know, 17 year old, I want to be a musician self peeking its, <laughs> peeking its head out. Um, Cause I never got to make an album, but I can, you know, oh, well, I could, I could well, no, put together I, poems I, and I pictures. <laughs> I think that's a completely valid point and very much is, you know, intuition, that young, uh, that that youthful sort of uh, rock band per- version of yourself that puts together the the pieces because, yeah. you know, you, you also want to make, uh, you want to make an impression and you want to put your best foot forward. So that would, people would get the most yeah. impact out of it and go, ooh, I really like this. You know, those you have those poems, yeah. I'm sure, Mary and Beth as well, that you just you're like, oh man, I love this poem. This was great. Other people have to love this. <laughs> and you just hope that they love it too. I mean, who knows if they do or not, but when you when you do get some some feedback and people are like, oh man, that that rocked, or that that really I really connected with that particular poem or got a lot out of it. That's just it's like a wave of euphoria. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're hooked once that happens. But yeah, I know that that's probably the best part to uh, the best time to say, yeah, why don't you share one of your poems? <laughs> so yeah, which one did you uh, pick up for today? I'm going to read this poem. Uh, it's entitled In This Place, uh, which is from my first Jack book, which is called this is our secret and yeah this just recently came out um like a little bit over a month ago i think I, I came out with this book and it was it's been a labor of love and it's so it 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 makes me happy every time i get to pull it out and share a poem with somebody or do a reading it is the first book in a trilogy of trap of chapbooks that the, that narrative where the narrative through point is very important to me. And this poem in, in particular, to give it a little bit of preface, um, does stand alone, but as part of the co- greater collective in this place certainly has its place. So. Um, Let me go ahead and read it. In this place, where currency and blessings are not the same, where tomorrow is less desire, more excuse, a single wildflower clutches her earth as if abandoned, as if having suddenly become aware and having no way of sharing. Feathers dust the roads. Instead of capacious trees and skies, the birds congregate in town halls beneath parked cars. In this place, seasons change with ululations of sirens and buzzers, flashing, whirling lights and not with lambent subtlety of shade and tone that lets all know, just as a lover slaps her lover's face for the first time, that this is not the way it was intended to be. In this place, a coyote off Northern Avenue, whose mordant disbelief swallowed the city lights, doesn't quite think The streets are the place to be, saunters home with tail raised high, just in case someone had seen. Thank you. Thanks. So what the hell does that mean, (laughs) right? So, So for me, this poem, is really about sort of the surreal juxtaposition of 
the wild and the urban. And I wanted to communicate some of my personal distress about that intersection where we meet the natural world and either change it for good or for bad. But at the same time, because This Is Our Secret is a book about relationships and little secrets, I wanted to, or at least I intended to put in elements into the poem that had a very striking imagery, um, like figurative language, like the the lover analogy, you know, is is sort of this is it kind of shocks you. I also was attempting to incorporate elements of the the natural world into the poem by utilizing and sort of perso- personifying like the wildflower and the the birds that are, are congregating in these human establishments or under parked cars or the coyote having this sort of repulsive experience with the craziness that it is the urban environment that's encroached on his domain right and he's like i'm getting out of here this is just not the place for me and and the bright lights and the whirling lights and just the 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 chaos that comes with sort of the 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 civilization that we've created it makes sense to me. Yeah, so that's a that's a fitting uh, selection for uh, for Art Wilder's journal. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I thought that that would that. be just perfect for you. <laughs> it was interesting, just that, and this is you know not planned, I suppose, but that, you know the first, the very first thing each of you said about your poem was the word place. So it was, um, I think, very kind of a specific entry point. And saying like, okay, I'm I am here. I'm writing from a, a specific place, and like, kind of using that as your environment, you know, from from which you're writing. I also, I'm really, I'm really appreciate that poem, Eric, and I, um, I like how it kind of dovetails with my work too. Of course, um, yeah. One of the things that struck me listening to it, you used two of my favorite words in there ululations and lambent, but you use them in ways that are jarring, like the ululations, not of cranes or, you know, right. of sirens. And so I thought that that, I appreciated that your use of language um, supported the, and showed the theme of the poem, you know, that sort of jarring contrast between um, the natural world and the and some of the human built world. Mm-hmm. Wow, I appreciate that. Yeah, the, the there is such joy to be found in the architecting of poetry, right? Mm-hmm. The fact is, as poets, all three of us, to be able to challenge the reader's preconception of the way that the word might be used in their day-to-day or the way they've always seen it used i think that's a fun playful strategy to incorporate and sort of challenge the normal by using language which can be so powerful and so moving and transformative and to use it to to find just maybe a slightly different way of saying something so that it hits somebody just in a way that they didn't expect. So I'm really glad to hear you say that because I was very intent that the language hit you in those particular, with those particular beats. That was, or at least that's my hope. You did it. 
<laughs> no, I know. I mean, I understand. It's like you write a poem and it's like, you know, I write these poems and they, I can, it's very clear to me what I'm up to, but you know, somebody else is not necessarily going to see it. And it's, you know, it's an interesting thing about poetry because when I, I've done these readings and um, I'll almost always have someone come up and say, you know, I just don't get poetry or, you know, it's like a prose writer here who's very well known has published a lot of prose books. And he said, I just don't get poetry. And it's interesting because we never say, I just don't get prose. We always use that, that I just don't get for poetry. And I feel like it's, um, so I've always tried to make my poems really accessible, but I, I find that there are still some poems that I don't, fully comprehend either but that probably just means that I need to read them more than two or three times even um, and and that's part of the joy of poetry for me really is that it's not all evident the first time through um, it makes it more enjoyable knowing that I can read the same poem many times and get something new from it just like a good piece of abstract art you know will take send me every time but in different directions mm-hmm yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally, I, I totally connect with what you're saying, Mary Beth. Absolutely. In our lives, we've read probably thousands of poems, and but there are certainly there are poems that you can come back to time and time again. And whether it's because of your particular circumstances in your life, or something that has happened to you, or just the the way that we change as we age and grow. And so we see things from a different point of view or a different tract and can return to a particular poem and just completely come at it from a totally different angle and be enriched and uplifted because of the revelation, right? The exposure of a, a different meaning, a hidden meaning in that poem that wasn't there to us the first time. And I'm I'm a big fan of dog earring and getting a pencil beside me and marking up because I like to come back to poems in a collection that I found striking and then give them give them their due diligence, right? Like out of respect to the poet and to the poem, but also out of respect to myself, because if it caught my attention, there's there's something there. That, that has yet to reveal itself and might need to be read over at a few different times. Mm -hmm. Who are some of your favorite poets that you're reading right now? Oh boy. Well, um, I, I, have read, <laughs> I have read, well, um, this guy's, this guy's pretty good. No, um, <laughs> um, who have I, you know, I've been reading so many poets this month because of the Sealy challenge that's going on. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Mary Beth. It's a poetry challenge um, put together by um, this, I guess, I don't know its origin story, but Nicole Sealy was a poet, University of Arizona Poetry Center. These two things smashed into each other and created this challenge whereby every during the month of August, the challenge is read a book of poetry a day there that's a, that's what it is in a nutshell so i've been doing this particular challenge this whole month and so every day this month i've read a book of poetry so who's my favorite poem poet i've been reading lately i've been reading so many it's it's hard to pinpoint um i'll tell you a couple that really stand out to me uh just so that maybe you guys can jot it on a piece of paper and say, oh, I might want to check that person out. Um, Mark Wunderlich is absolutely phenomenal. Um, he is probably one of my favorite poets. Um, I also have uh, that this isn't the time or place for it, but I have a personal connection with this poet, even though he doesn't know me from Adam, but I have a personal connection to his writing. And you know how you have relationships in your youth and they always, you you have fish hooked onto something and it'll always be with you. Well, he's one of those poets where like where anything he writes, I will 
always be there to read it and pick it up. So I read him this month again, and returning to him was absolutely phenomenal. Um, there are some very more commercial poets that I really do like. Um, you know, Billy Collins is great. He has um, a, a levity to his writing and a sense of humor that is, yeah. I find very uplifting. Ted Kuzer as well, you know, both prior poet laureates. And so, you know, they've got all the accolades and everything, but these are talented poets and they're great. Um, boy, what about you? What are some of the poems that, that, that you like, poets that you like, Mary Beth? Um, gosh, I, well, I, you know, some of my classic favorites are Wendell Berry and Mary Oliver. Um, Yes, Mary Oliver. Um, you know, when I first started, well, I didn't. I wasn't writing poetry. I was just reading poetry because the poet Jane Kenyon, who's another one of my all-time favorites, mm -hmm. she gave advice to young writers, and one of her lines of advice was, "Have good sentences in your ears." And so, the best sentences are poetry. <laughs> so yeah. I would read a poem every morning. Um, before I started in on my own writing, which was always prose at that time. And Mary Oliver's were just my favorite because they're such, they're such praise poems. They're so delightful um, and surprising and they're very accessible. I mean, a lot of yeah. times, you know, I recommend her just for someone that doesn't think they get poetry because mm -hmm. you get Mary Oliver. Um, Jane Hirschfield is another one of my favorites. W.S. Merwin. Um, yes. Linda Hogan. I like Linda Hogan so much because she writes in all the genres. And I find that, I love that. Um, there's also a couple of uh, poets that I was on an AWP panel with this past March. And both of them have excellent work. Gretchen Primack, she's in, or Primack, I'm sorry. She's in upstate New York. And Megan Kaminsky, she's in Kansas. Um, and Gretchen writes mostly from the she writes a lot of persona poems about uh, from the point of view of farm animals, which is really interesting. And Megan writes uh, a lot of poems from the point of view of plants, which is really fascinating. Um, I, I've really been enamored of, of poets that are, that are doing that kind of thing. Like, you know, we, we've written about animals for a long time, but you don't write about plants very much. <laughs> plants? And, yeah. Did you say plants? Oh, okay. Plants, yeah. 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 Like the wildflower in your poem. Yeah, yeah. If you tried to write a poem from the perspective of that plant. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's, a, that's some effort there because they're pretty different from us. So anyhow, um, those are just some of the poets, and I realize they're all women. Well, no, except for Merwin, of course, and Barry. But um, there's a lot of others. Their names just aren't coming to me now. But Louise Gluck is yes. fantastic. Really uh, Sharon Olds, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Both two are. They also kind of hit one of one of your uh, one of your nails. Is they're, they're both very easy and approachable it's easy to read their poetry without feeling like oh my god i'm reading poetry i you know it's inaccessible this is a bunch of high flute and garbage i mean you can really get into their words and just uh, and there's, i don't know if you read the poetry of ross gay do you know his work no his work is really fun too and he has his poetry is excellent but he also has a book called the book of delights which is short prose pieces and they're awesome. So yeah, I, I like it when, I, I guess I'm saying I do like it when poets also play around in other forms, like, because I think you can learn from it. The yeah, same way I agree. I try to play around in music. Um, I'm not ever going to play for anyone else, but <laughs> I play around in it, you know, and, or I play around in, in painting or drawing or something, because I feel like if you, if you work in another art form, it it inspires and enriches the form that you are really practicing in, which for us is poetry. 
this month, Erin Ballou, who's been around for a while, she's been great. Jane Satterfield, Cynthia Huntington, um, Gabrielle Bates is a, re a relatively new up and coming poet. It's not only great to, to peer into different perspectives and different talent, but poetry, and, and this is one of the things I guess I love so much about poetry, is that poetry transforms me. It makes me a better person. It allows me to see the world through different lenses. You know, I don't know what that is like when you go to the uh, optometrist, you know, and they're like, and all these things are dropping down, right? I get to see with clarity. I get to see blurred. I get to see pink. I get to see white. I get to see yellow. I get to see rainbow. I get to see poetry. Does it, and it does it so much more powerfully than prose, in my opinion because of its condensed form factor and shape because you can you can you can take in poetry like you said you read it every morning you can take it almost like a lozenge right you can take it as an as your vitamins each day in just a small little piece and get so much out of it whereas you know you you might also get the same impact from reading an entire book but it's just a, it's just a different experience Sorry, I ramble. So you got to just cut right in and say, Eric, we get your point. <laughs> there's uh, there's too many good recommendations in there. Yeah, I know. Um, we need another month to devote to uh, reading a book a day. Maybe we could sneak another month in there. But yeah, I, I, amazingly, we haven't mentioned that the two I'll, I'll mention just because it was from a, a pretty recent experience. I popped into a, a used bookstore um, not too long ago, and I left with two books. Uh, one was uh, Tess Gallagher and one was Gary Snyder. So I felt like that was pretty representative of like my influences. Like if I, if I like leave with those two books, I feel like um, that was pretty accurate. But um, I love those two poets as well. So, yeah, I think we did it. We covered a lot of ground. I think that's a, that's a good ending point, with all, especially with all those recommendations. I feel like if you don't feel like reading, uh, you know, reading some poetry now, I don't know if you ever are going to feel that way. Thanks again, Mary Beth, for returning, sharing your poem, rock poem, <laughs> with mm -hmm. us. And uh, thank you, Eric, for sharing your poem, This is the Place. I get that right in, in this place, um, but pretty close. In this place, this is the uh, place. This, this, this right is the secret, right? Or this is our secret is the name of the book, <laughs> and um, and Mary Beth's book, uh, Tender Gravity. I saved the save. I saved my plug for last, right? I have a new chapbook, The Half Turn, which just came out, which maybe I'll I'll uh, share something some other time. I'll save it for later, but um, I, uh, I've been posting about it enough on Instagram. If you've been following Wilder Journal, you've you know seen what? Uh, you've seen I'm, this isn't this isn't this isn't to butter the host, but yeah. Aaron, great! I thoroughly enjoyed the half turn. I was, was so you. appreciative to get yeah. a copy of that in the mail, and. Um, you in particular have a poem in there and i just want to touch on it a second a poem in there called uncertainty and you know what i'm talking about um that particular poem couldn't have i it, it's it, it's what i was mentioning earlier when a poem you read hits you at the right time and it just drills a hole into your heart like I read uncertainty at the exact moment I needed to read it and it sparked fire in me. It got me upset. It got me frustrated and it did exactly its job. Even though I knew that, that I knew what you were trying to, or at least I feel like I knew what you were trying to do with the, the with the piece and to leave off with a, with the aspirational message at the back end of uncertainty. 
And I'm, I know this is probably a big teaser to Mary Beth. She's like, hmm, I need to go read this poem now. But um, it, it was just, it was such a great particular poem. And it hit me at the right time in the right place. And it, it was so impactful. And I know I'm going to go back to that poem later, Aaron. I'm going to read it again. And I'm going to have a different experience with it because it was challenging. It was a tough poem, too. I found that about your writing, that your writing is actually a little bit challenging, a little bit. <laughs> I don't mean that condescending. Okay. It actually is kind of tough. And I like that. I like the fact that it's like, what the hell? I need to read this one more time. But I want to read it because I know the message inside of it is valuable. And I, I stepped away from uncertainty more certain. Well, that's, that's quite a plug. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I want to, I'll say more at a different time, I feel like, but yeah, I, I think that that's fair to say. Balancing, um, yeah, simplicity and complexity, which is a, a tendency, I suppose, as a writer. Is that um, your, per is that your particular, um, what you fixate or focus on for the half turn? was like finding sort of a balance where you can take relatively simple ideas and then make them tremendously complex. No, I'm just kidding. Or take uh, complex ideas and reduce them to make them very yeah, simple. Yeah. yeah, I know Mary about you probably relate as a professor. You could uh, you could do the former, I think, pretty pretty easily as a <laughs> from time to time, you know. To, can't avoid it sometimes. Yeah, it goes it goes in both directions. But yeah, I love the the idea. I love the idea of simplicity. That's that's uh, that's something. Let to me ask you a really question, really. Aaron. Since since I've got you captured here for a minute on your own video, what is the cover and the art design? Can you talk to your design of the book? Because I always think that that's really important and striking. The design. What is it? And where did you get it? Who did it? I mean, is it what does it mean to you? That's a fun question. Uh, I don't know if you're setting me up, um, but I did it. Uh, so that's a photo I did as far as the, the cover art. It appears to be, at least I feel like it appears to be smoke. And there's a lot of uh, fire imagery in the book. So it kind of has this appearance of kind of smoke trails. But it's actually a play with um, intentional camera movement. So it's not actually smoke. It's just kind of the, the trails of light I used. Um, okay, cool. It's an intentional, yeah. It's captivating. It, it turned out great. It was, it had me wondering that I had to ask, yeah. so. Yeah, so I, I, uh, I, what I set out for, at least with the, with the cover image, was I wanted something light and dark. Because um, that's, oh, no, that's a, another kind of set of images that um, reoccur. Um, but yeah, so the light and dark interplay was um, a big deal. There you have it. That's the secret of the cover. It's an intentional camera movement photo. No, oh, that's great. <laughs> the, the cover, I mean, that's all part of your presentation when you put it out there, what you choose to put on the front. And what about with tender gravity? I mean, Mary Beth, was there... A particular design element that went into the book's cover? This is um, from a painting done by um, an Alaska artist. Her name is Linda Infante Lyons, and she's um, an incredible artist and a good friend, um, and I have loved her work for years, and she is um, from Kodiak, uh, region uh, Aleutic heritage, and she it's she brings a lot of different aspects into her work. But this idea of the 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 union with the natural world permeates all of her work. So when I was thinking about a cover, I knew that I wanted to have an Alaska artist. I knew that I wanted to, you know use my book cover as a platform to um, to showcase some of one of our artists here in Alaska. And Linda came to the top 
because I've just loved her work for so long. And she let me use the artwork. I was so delighted. I love that. (laughs) I love that. It was great because when I did the the book launch for my book here in Anchorage, I did it as a as a fundraiser for Trustees for Alaska, which is an environmental um, law firm here. And Trustees was great. They organized everything. And I read some poems. And then Linda and I had a discussion and we opened it up to, um, you know, questions from the audience as well. But we had a discussion about art and our relation to the more than human world. And um, it was really beautiful. So I really love this cover. (laughs) Excellent. That's great. All right. Cover cover chat. Um, I mean, it's it's important. Yeah, you, thanks for asking. You wanted me. to you wanted to go behind the curtains. I mean, I know. these are all Ask for these are right. important things. And we don't always get to choose. You know what yeah. it looks like. A lot of publishers won't let the writer have much say over it. You know, so it's good when we do get to have some input because we usually do have some kind of idea. Like Aaron, like you said, the light and dark. Yeah. Well, we got to go. Okay. Uh, well, we don't have to go, but I think it's about time. Thanks once again, Mary Beth. Thanks once again, Eric. Great talking to you. <laughs> As my camera freezes out. Thank you. Thank you.